Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. back with another episode. I'm really excited today because I have one of my oldest friends in dentistry, not old like ancient old, but like one of my longest term friends, Michelle Afanato. Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm great, Teresa. How are you? I, I'm excited again, only because I know people are like, she's always excited. I am always excited about my guests. I usually have a good conversation with every single one of them, but when you said you wanted to come on the podcast, Michelle, I was super, super happy because I always want to help my friends like get as much out there as possible. And you're one of the people who has impressed me over the years. We've known each other like, like I think 15, 20 years, I know. right? Yeah, it's been a long time. And I'm always impressed with everything that you come up with. And you actually, a lot of people don't know this because, you know, it was not, not a long time, but it was a pretty decent amount of time. But you actually uh, were an Odyssey management consultant for a little bit. That's right. And you really impressed me then. And when you left to join Ideal Practices, I understood completely because you had, you were able to help way more people with that company. You were the former director of their startup MBA, which makes absolute sense to me because that's the level that you teach at. And you've had 20 years in dental experience. So I'm just setting the scene so everybody knows like why I'm super impressed with you. So you've had 20 years of being like wet fingered, but you've been in dentistry about 30 plus years, which means that you're like an old dental fart like myself. <laughs> I know. I feel it every day. <laughs> <laughs> the creakiness. So when you left Ideal Practices, you you and I were on the phone. I remember you talking about how you wanted to do so much extra training because training, you're, you're good at consulting, but you're also a really good trainer. You have a way of breaking things down for people. When you're talking about training, what do you see as the difference between training and consulting? Because that is something that I get a lot is, what do you mean you don't consult? I, I train. What do you consider to be the difference between training and consulting? For me, consulting would be giving knowledge to the doctor, a little bit of training to the doctor or the team members, but having them really go implement it, guiding them more so. Training is deep diving and working with them one-on-one, -on -one. a little bit more hand-holding than consulting is. <laughs> like over-the-shoulder type <laughs> consulting would be considered more training. And I think that a lot of team members, uh, when they bring in a consultant, what they really need first is a trainer to help them just get the basics, the systems down, and then the overall vision can come into play with the consulting. So I love that you have experience in both of that. I want to get into this product that you have that's called the, what is it? The New Bootcamp. New to Dental Bootcamp. New to Dental Bootcamp. When we get into that, I want to break down, first of all, why you thought that was important, but also what it is that somebody could say that they are experienced with when they're done with the program. And I can just tell you 
with so many people going in and out of dentistry, Michelle, I think the lack of new energy in dentistry is is sad. But when you get somebody in, we overwhelm them a lot of times. Have you seen that happen with your um, startup clients way back in the day? Absolutely. We just kind of throw them in. In dentistry, we, even if somebody has experience, we still throw them in and say like, great, your resume shows that you have five years experience. You should know how to do this. But every single doctor, every single practice is different. And if we don't train the team members to do it the way that we want it done in our practice, they kind of resort back to the way that they've always done in another practice, which may not be what the doctor's vision is for their practice. Legacy mistakes happen and they get carried over. Um, One of the questions I asked you prior to getting on board was like, what are the red flags that you see when you go into an office to train? What are the red flags that you see with staff? Well, one is that legacy. (laughs) Um, I tend to find that people with 10 years of experience or more, and that's just a number that over the years has like popped up, tend to not be as willing to change or adapt to the way they want things done in the practice. They are kind of set in their ways and this is the way they've always done it. What about this, oh, you're just the latest consultant thing? <laughs> is That's a thing, right? That is definitely a thing. And I always ask people, have you worked with a consultant before? I worked with consultants before. And sometimes my experience with them makes me wonder, like, well, I can't believe I actually went into consulting because it wasn't a great experience. <laughs> but I wanted to change that. I was going to say, you probably saw what was like not working and you're like, why do they keep pushing this? Right, exactly. I'm not perfect, but I've looked, worked in so many different areas of dentistry and I've worked with so many different types of doctors. Doctors that are right out of school, doctors that are just buying a practice or starting up a practice or doctors that have been working for 30 years and want to change the way that they do it. But there's a common theme with all of them. And unfortunately... I don't think this is a big surprise to anybody. It's all the stuff that they never learned in dental school. It's Mm. running the business. Oh my gosh. Don't get me started on what they don't teach in dental school. (laughs) Not that I have anything against dental schools teaching the dentistry part, but the, the clinician part is not all that they have to deal with. So, and being a startup, I know you and I, when you were with Odyssey, we worked with a few startups, but we also, you have worked with so many more when you left to go work at Ideal Practices. So you have like just a ton of experience there. When you gave me a quote, when we did the pregame show, you said that training and retaining employees is just a huge problem. We were talking a little bit about that and we could really just complain about that for a whole hour. But, but honestly, there's a quantifiable number attached to that. So if you keep losing people. What did you say it was? How much of the salary? It's about 30% of that position's salary that it costs every time you're, you know, losing somebody, rehiring, retraining everybody. So what I have found, thanks to COVID, or no thanks to COVID, I should say, (laughs) (laughs) it has definitely changed definitely changed the industry, which is, you know, not something new to, to people right now. And people are struggling to find team members. I, I know offices that have been looking for a year, six months, they've been looking for a really long time for someone. 
And I think we're focusing on the wrong things when we're hiring them. Like we're trying to throw out all these benefits and how can I compete with them and like give the latest and greatest, you know, all this money, throwing all this money at them or medical insurance or gym memberships or like all of these things to them. But you know, people really want to know that they're going to walk into a job, any job, and be trained right. You know, they, they can't, they have experience, but they don't know how things are done in that office. And we can't just assume that they're going to know it. So they are really wanting that training. There's an Instagram meme page that I follow called Employee Tears. And I'll have to link it in there. But some of the memes on there are about how, you know, we bring you into a job and we give you no training. Like you just throw them on there. And as somebody who has never worked in dentistry, coming in, taking a look at the job description, they're looking at it and they're like, oh, yeah, this looks doable. And then they realize how freaking hard it is. I can't tell you how many managers have said I cannot train an insurance coordinator because they quit within three days. Well, yeah, because that job is really hard. But I also think we just... We just tell them and we throw information and we say, this is what you have to do versus explaining the why behind it. And one of the things that I've been doing a lot lately, since a lot of offices have hired people with no dental office experience, is training the why behind the insurance breakdown and making sure that we have all that information. And I can spend an hour and a half going over an office's breakdown sheet and explaining why every bit of information is not only important to gather when you're on the phone or on the website, but making sure it's properly inputted into the software as well. So I kind of do that with scheduling. I kind of do that with collecting finances is give them the why behind it, not just this is what you have to do and this is the way we do it in our office. But when you explain the why to them, it resonates a little better and, and they're going to work smarter, right? The properly trained employees are going to work smarter and hopefully increase your productivity. Now, when you said scheduling, um, I was reminded of an exercise that you and I did when we were out with our one of our favorite clients out in California. <laughs> I, if she's listening, she knows who she is. But we did this exercise where you went through how many people were scheduled in a day and what that exponentially could go out to. And I don't want to get into the details of that because it's a pretty decent exercise, but it takes a little bit of time to do. But I remember the scheduling piece in that particular office, it had to make sense to people why we were scheduling the way we were scheduling. And you, you, you led that team meeting and it went over really well. But one thing that I've never really been good at has been the scheduling. So when I saw that it was part of your boot camp, I was excited, but can you just tell me, what the big issue is with block scheduling? Are you for, against it? How easy is that to teach? Because that is, that's the one thing that I think can really screw over a team in one day is if somebody didn't schedule correctly and that your whole day is just screwed after that. I love block scheduling, but again, the team, the entire team has to be trained on it. Not just the front office team that's scheduling appointments. Everybody needs to understand the why. And something that I've recently been, you know, talking to offices when they're hiring somebody is asking, uh, do they like to do Sudoku puzzles or do they like to play Tetris or something like that? Because oh, fun. scheduling is a lot like that. 
because if one thing goes wrong, it throws off the entire day. So when you're playing Tetris, if one block is in the wrong place, they're going to pile up quickly and your game's over. Yeah, then it's Jenga and all the blocks are all <laughs> over the floor. I, I get that completely. When I was uh, consulting, I thought I found scheduling to be the hardest piece of it. Um, do you start... And that's why I was so happy that you brought that skill set to Odyssey what, back in the day. Do you start um, the block schedule gradually or do you pick a day where everything is just that this is how we do it from now on? Um, it's a little bit of both. I do have a, a, a date. Like this is the date that it mandatory has to be done this way. But if we can sprinkle it in a little bit to get them used to it, maybe it's just new patient appointments or maybe it's just a, a few crown blocks here and there. Um but in order to do it properly, you can't just say, oh, I want to do this many crowns. You actually have to run that uh, procedure report to see how many you're averaging each month so that you're putting the right amount of blocks. Having too many or too few blocks is going to throw it off as well. Sure. Can we go back to the um, legacy manager? Because I know we talked about how if the manager's been there for 10 some years and they're not willing to change, there's lots of managers that you and I know that have been for 10, 15, 20 years. What's the characteristic of a manager who's is going to be okay? Like that doesn't scare you when you see they've been there for 10, 15 years. What can you tell me about that manager? Cause I'm guessing the people that are listening want to be that manager rather than the keeper of the kingdom type manager. <laughs> it's all about CE and keeping your mind open to, to knowledge you know, I managed an office or offices for 20 years, but I was, my doctor, I was so fortunate, was big on CE, not just for the clinical team, but for the administrative team. There's always something more that you can learn to improve the way the office is um, efficiently scheduling or collecting money, but to improve efficiency, I guess. Um, if If you have somebody that has worked for 10, 20 years, and they don't have any CE, they're not looking to improve themselves, that that makes me a little nervous. Yeah, when I was reviewing resumes of people who were applying for jobs, if they didn't have any recent classes, and then they, when I got them in front of me and I was interviewing them, if they were like, well, I only take CE when the doctor pays for it, or, you know, it, or they don't take CE at all, they may be a nice person and they may not have had the impact of CE on their lives, but it's, I know that it's going to be an uphill training battle for me as a manager. So I, I do look at that a lot. And you mentioned in the pregame again, that about for millennials, 35% of them, they call out training to be a top benefit. And I think I'm so old school. I'm going, yeah, I know. I just kind of figured that you'd get training, but I think enough millennials have been, or even us, our gen, has realized that they can throw you in, you know, to the job and not provide any training. So that's why it's important that you offer the training, not necessarily consulting, because if you tell people when they're coming on board, hey, we, I work with a consultant, that's not really that's not really a sell. But if you say, look, I'm going to hold your hand through the whole process until you get, you know, you can fly on your own, I think that's really a sell. So now I'm going to give you a hard question, Michelle. When you have a new office, they don't have money. They don't even know what they're looking for. Do you take a chance on somebody who just has a really good sunny disposition? I would hire on attitude and a culture fit over skill set any day. Okay. Any day. You can train the skills. If somebody doesn't catch on to everything, there are plenty of companies to outsource to down the road. But any all day, I would take 
personality over skill set. Is there a type of employee that has worked best for you? And I'll give you an example. My two best hires came from the jewelry industry. They have no issues with like, hey, this is $50,000. How are you going to pay for it? And they're just hard workers anyways. Do you see a, a pattern in the type of good employees that you find? Somebody that has worked in the hotel industry as a bank teller, which I know some people say bank tellers are not always have a cheery disposition, but... Yeah, no, the one I take my stuff to is, he, he's just ridiculous, to be honest with you, but go ahead. <laughs> and people that are like servers, waitresses and, and waiters, because they put up with a lot of stuff and they're just great. They always come in and they have a smile on their face no matter what is going on. I would have to say one of my best hires was a waitress out of like a little diner. And once we trained her, she picked up on things really quick but patients just loved her with the personality. And if you're willing to train somebody like that, you can really take them far. What's interesting is when you go to approach someone who is in an existing job, like, I mean, I've tried to recruit people from all these different industries, you know, in the past, and they would look at me like, what do you mean? Like, what are you, what are you offering here? And the reason being is because they felt so undervalued in their own job. They didn't realize what a gem they are. So how I'm just thinking about how all these doctors who have like really fantastic people, they may not even realize that their people are looking around. So this whole thing about offering training and benefits and all that, you mentioned a whole bunch of them, gym memberships and all. The mistake I'm seeing now is that we're trying to recruit people so much that we're, get, we're offering all these benefits but we're not extending them to the people who've been there 10, 15 years. So like, you know, Sally walks in, she's got a $5,000 signing bonus and everybody's like, what the hell? I've been here with you through COVID. Like, where's my signing bonus? And then you have resentment. So I think this, we're just in a nasty cycle. It's, it's rough. It is rough. I probably get two or three calls uh, a week from people, not even clients, just like friends over the years that have, and they're like, you know, this person left because somebody stole them away and is going to pay them $10 more an hour and give them all these benefits. Like, I can't compete with that. Right. And so to me, a lot of people, yes, it's about the money and I get it. Like people have bills to pay. The cost of everything is going up. Like it scares me to go to the grocery store or to the gas station these days. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> but if you treat the employees right and they're properly trained and you invest in them, that's the, the thing is they have to see that you're invested, not just new employees, but existing employees as well. And if everybody is properly trained, you're going to be more productive, there'll be more revenue, and there'll be more money to pay other team members, even the existing ones. So let's talk about your your training curriculum and we'll have a link you know in the show notes but I know there's a lot of managers who are pretty smart who listen to this too and and new Dennis Michelle I'd like you just to list the areas that you're focusing on because when I took a look at the materials I was like oh this is this is pretty perfect because this is exactly what they have to deal with because there there's definitely training programs immersion programs that try to teach you everything really quickly and it's just overwhelming so tell me the categories that you're going to train in and let's talk about one or two of them and talk about the hassles with that because I definitely want to I want to do some complaining with you just just because <laughs> we're good at it when we do that <laughs> yeah so the way the way it's set up is you've got to space out the training a little bit of like learning and watching so we start off because the 
new to dental boot camp is geared towards somebody with, you know, minimal dental office experience. So we start off with some terminology and the common things like a welcome to dentistry. This is what the job entails. <laughs> you already signed the agreement and said, yes, but here's the real overview <laughs> of what you'll be. <laughs> We've got you now and you can't go anywhere. Uh, so that's kind of how, how it starts off. Customer service is a huge part of it because we all know patients have no idea how good of a clinician the dentist is. It's all about how they're treated throughout that appointment. So we do cover a lot of things about customer service and how we can wow that patient, not just at the new patient appointment, but every time they step foot in that office. Okay. So let's think about that for a second. I really think that there should be mandatory retail service on everybody coming out of high school. You should have to work retail for at least three months so that you can find out how crazy people are. Oh, yes. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Did you have a job in high school or college that you were like, that that exposed the underbelly of people? Did you have one of those jobs? I've worked in dentistry since I was 15. It's all I know. Oh. Well, that, I, but honestly, that's where you find out the worst of the worst, right? <laughs> I remember I worked in uh, Wicks and Sticks, which is a candle shop. Do you remember? Yes. Wicks and Sticks? Yeah. yeah. So I don't even think they're around anymore, but um, it was candles. And I never knew people could get so angry about candles and Christmas displays. And I've had old ladies like threaten me because we didn't have things in stock. And so you really don't realize how far people can go off the deep end until you've had to deal with them. So yeah, maintaining cool is, is super important. All right, let's go. What's next? Insurance, insurance, uh, insurance, insurance. Uh, uh, and, and again, it's the basics of insurance, like the breakdown and getting to understand like why and how to kind of deal with the insurance reps and getting the information that you need because doing the due diligence on the front end will definitely save you a lot of headaches on the back end. Mm-hmm. Financial protocols. We have to understand what the office's financial protocols are so we can collect the money the way the office wants to. Like ultimately, everybody's financial protocol should be payment at the time of service. Mm -hmm. But how do we deliver that message to patients? How do we get them to pay? So you teach them how to say, give me your money. Yes. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and it's just as simple as that, right? right. Give me, we did a service today. How are you going to pay me? <laughs> right, right. Like the, the girl at the grocery store doesn't just go, how are you going to pay me today? She like <laughs> stares at me until I pull up my credit card. I wish we had that kind of like right. ability, right? <laughs> right, right. But, you know, in dentistry, we, we can tend to shy away and we don't want to be salespeople and we're afraid to ask for money. So, But isn't that a legacy thing too? It is. And and you know what? I've even noticed that mindset from patients. And it's like passed down from generation to generation. Cause <laughs> right. Right. When, when I first started in dentistry, way back when, it was always, if they had insurance, we will bill you. And if they had two insurances, like they hardly ever had to pay anything. Mm-hmm. Over the years, right, it started to become a little bit more common that we would ask for money up front. And, you know, and if they have two insurances, like... You're lucky if you get coverage from both of them at all. No kidding. No kidding. But I feel like patients say, well, like, I've never had to pay before. My previous dentist never billed me. So people are still doing that and letting people walk out without paying. Mm -hmm. And it boggles my mind because there's a lot of bills to pay. There's a big overhead in a dental practice. And when you let that person walk out without paying, you're going to have a really hard time chasing them. 
Well, and if you're not in the habit of sending out your statements on a regular basis, that becomes a real problem. I, I talked to one lady, uh, we had a consultation last week, you know, I did one of my strategy sessions and she was telling me that they discovered they hadn't sent out statements in three years because the person that had that job never sent them out. And you always think, okay, well, how do you miss three years worth of, or, you know, three years worth of statements. But when the cash flow is coming in from insurance, it's easy to just say, okay, well, we're still flush with cash a little bit. It's not that bad. But now what they're running into is the doctor is, does not want to send out statements because he feels like they will call and have a ton of questions, which they will. And so they need to fix that first. So this is going to get pushed out probably till by the time they get ready to go and hire somebody to come in clean accounts. So we're looking at three and a half years oh. where they've never billed uh, the patients. And good luck if those patients are even still at the listed addresses. Exactly. The other issue that I've run into with a couple of uh, people that have done the boot camp is we've discovered that a patient was sent 19 statements, nothing but And they kept coming in and having more work done and more work done and never made payments, but they kept getting their statements every month. So there has to be consequences and accountability for them. So they were coming in and nobody was asking them for the balance at the time. Correct. They just figured, well, they'll mail in a check. Yep, exactly. So this is really important because I think a lot of times doctors, when they're caught up in the clinical stuff, which is obviously what they should be doing, they don't pay attention to those kinds of metrics. You know, how many over-the-counter payments are we getting and how many by-mail payments are we getting? Just running the payment report will show you if most of your payments are insurance, you got a problem. We got to, you know, back that up. So you're going to train them on how to ask for money. And that comes with a little bit of confidence, though. So do you tackle the confidence or do you tackle <laughs> the verbiage? What do you do first? It's training and getting them to understand why we're charging the amount that we're charging, uh, the cost to run the business. You can't be super secretive about the, the numbers because if the team doesn't understand why we have to collect all this money or reach a certain goal, then it, it's not important to them. So yes, we train on the why behind it, the conversation tips. I'm not a big fan of saying scripting anymore, but like the conversation tips on how to handle certain situations with patients. And then having a nice financial protocol that even though it's payment at the time of service, it gives them options, third-party financing, prepayment courtesies if they don't have insurance, membership plans, different things to help people afford dentistry. And you just have to have the right kind of personality. Not everybody is meant to be collecting money. Oh, that's a very good point because if you're hiring them for attitude and they're bubbly and everything like the server you were talking about, um, well, that's actually a bad example because she's used to collecting money every day after every meal. But what happens when somebody is just very friendly and good at their job, but they're so terrified of asking for money, then that becomes a, like you said, that's a barrier problem, right? Yeah. So I like to have people take a disc profile okay. before they hire them. You want somebody that has some dominance. That's not afraid. You don't want somebody super shy working up front. They might have a great personality, but they're not going to collect your money. They're not going to guide the people into the appointment slot that you want them, right? They'll be people, people pleasers because they don't want to have that confrontation. So you want somebody that is a little bit more on the dominant side. So when you're hiring somebody, it's not just like, hey, I like them and I think they have a great resume. There's like a couple factors that have to go into it before you make that decision. So what else is on your boot camp? Scheduling. 
And the thing about this boot camp that is a little bit different, I don't think we talked about this, is that it's completely customizable to the office. Oh, okay. Not everybody schedules the same way. Not everybody has the same financial options. Uh, not everybody's insurance breakdown sheet looks the same. So I would gather the information from the office and train the team member on how you want it done in your office. And it's about what, every two weeks that you're doing it? And it's virtual, right? So it is virtual, but it's about a two week, like it's an intense two weeks. So it's about 12 to 15 hours spread over two weeks, three to four days a week for the two weeks. And then um, some follow up afterwards because you want to onboard these people as quickly as possible and have them to have a solid foundation, right? There's still so much for them to learn, but if they have the foundation, they'll have a little bit more confidence. We'll know which questions to ask instead of just sitting there waiting to be told to do something. They may be a little bit more uh, willing to think outside the box and do try some things on their own. Right. It is funny that you brought up the disc because that's something that I really never did. Working with consultants, I always was taking the disc and it seemed to help out, but I really wasn't a big um, proponent of the personality test. But I think now more than ever, we're hiring people. We're just looking for a pulse, right? Like basically a lot of people are looking for a pulse, which is really the worst way to fill a job in your office. So a disc is a way of doing at least the minimum of, you know, will this person work? Will this person not work? And I'm just, I'm stunned by how many employees come in and they're just gone after a week or so. I mean, that's really like the big thing that I'm hearing is, you know, first of all, good luck for them showing up for the interview. And then the second thing is good luck with having somebody who doesn't cancel the day of starting the job. I've heard that so much. Haven't you been hearing that? Like you get a text in the morning, like where I just decided I'm not going to take this job. What on earth? That never happened when when I was, we were hiring, right? Like 20, 30 years ago. We never got stuff like that. Well, we never got texts because, you know, we're old. But, (laughs) But we never got like the call the day of, like I'm just not coming in. This is a whole new set of managerial conundrums, you know, that, that we're faced with. All right. Are there any other uh, categories that you're going to be teaching on? Case presentation. So how do you present that treatment? Uh, some of, and that's something that I loved doing, even when we were, you and I were presenting together uh, for the ADIA. That was like my favorite thing to talk about was like case presentation. It's all about education. So we talk about case presentation and then meetings morning huddles and team meetings and what is it, what are you supposed to bring to it and how is the meeting actually supposed to go so that it is effective and productive and you know people are held accountable for what is discussed and it's not just a gripe session and we're talking about you know the same things over and over again or we get to the morning huddle and instead we're talking about like hey the patriots are on this like six game winning streak or this is what happened on Grey's anatomy last night we focus on what needs to be And people, you just heard her mention the Patriots because Michelle is a huge Patriots fan. It's actually pretty hilarious. You really like, I want to just say this and I say this with love. You're pretty rabid about your Patriots. And so is your family. Your family is like pretty crazy. It's pretty funny. Um, You mentioned ADIA. So people just, so that you know what that is, is the Association of Dental Implant Auxiliaries. And uh, shout out to Lynn Mortella because she pretty much 
got me started speaking. And I know, Michelle, she was very good with you helping you get on the podium as well. I started out with them speaking on implants and case presentations. And then you, you came along, you were taking classes, you got all the certification as well. Then you started teaching the classes. But those classes were brutal. It was do you remember it was eight, eight to hours. six? Yep. No, eight to six. Oh, yeah. Because remember, and then they had the two hour or an hour and a half lunch, right? So it was 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And every year we were like, Lynn, you're killing us. But there was so much material. And you would just walk out as, I think there was a track for managers. There was a track for um, hygienists and a track for assistants. I think it's still going on. I haven't really looked into it. I'll link it in the show notes. And um, and then I completely revamped their treat. Uh, insurance coordinator program. So we started teaching that as well. And you, you came in and just pretty much took the ball and went running with it. But that's how we met. Can you believe that so long ago? I know. I can't believe it. I can't believe it at all. I still remember you coming up and introducing me to your doctor at the time. It was just adorable. So you were a baby, baby consultant in the making. I could see it. I know, but you know, (laughs) you and I, you took me under your wing and, and look at, look at where we are now. Well, let me just bring up, because you have so much experience with not just um, startups, but early stage practices. What are some of the worst situations that could have been avoided that you've run into? So one of the biggest things that I've come across is, I hate to say it, is the doctor just immediately handing the keys to the kingdom over. And yes, you should hire people that you trust to do all of these things. But when you own a practice, whether you're starting your own or you're buying somebody else's or you're becoming a partner, you're not just a dentist anymore. You're not just the clinician. So you have to know what's going on in the business. And so looking at reports along with your team members or knowing what to spot, you know, will will help avoid some costly mistakes down the road. And really understanding, I think a big thing for doctors is understanding your vision. Because it's very easy to say, this is how I want my practice to be. But then you have, oh, well, why aren't you taking this insurance? Or why aren't you opening you know, nights and weekends when that really wasn't their vision? So they'll start doing things and it's really hard to take those things back afterwards. So to me, One of the the biggest things that I see with practices is the doctor just still wants to be a doctor. Hmm. When you're saying they hand over the keys to the kingdom, like they give them access to finances, they give them access to do whatever they want. Oh, so how has that backfired? Do you remember any specific cases? Oh, I know a couple doctors that have like right off the bat have given like access, complete access to the bank account and they're supposed to pay all the bills and they have full access to hire and fire right from the beginning. And then there's been some sad stories that have have come from that because you think that people are trustworthy, but if, and they probably are, but you never know somebody's circumstances or whatever. So it's, it's still good to have somebody do that. I'm not telling you not to have anybody do that because you need to do that. I want dentists doing dentistry, what they want to do, but I also want to encourage doctors to participate in the business side of their practice. How many of your former clients um, over the last 10, 15 years, how many of them have opened with the intent of selling to a DSO? A few. I've had a handful. Okay. 
So it's mostly they want to do it on their own. So that's still mostly what you're seeing. That's what Ideal Practices is about, is like a okay. solo, solo um, practice owner. Some have changed their mind, you know, yeah. things happen in life and they have changed their mind. Uh, but that was one thing I loved about Ideal Practices is because I have no, nothing against a group practice or a DSO or anything, but it was still like, it was a small business. It was a one doctor who maybe brought in associates or, you know, partners down the road, but it was still supporting a small, smaller practice. And they were very much involved with it. I'm hopeful that that's a trend that continues. Cause like you said, there's nothing against DSOs. They have their own model. But I know we went through this period of time where it felt like everybody was selling to a DSO or they were getting acquired. And you start thinking, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to the little dentist? How are they going to survive? So it really makes me happy to hear that that is, you know, there's companies out there that are, are looking to do that. I know you have been really good with these um, handholding clients. Is there one particular um, type of situation that you were more proud of than others? Like, was there a situation in one of your offices that you were able to pull them back from the brink? You want to talk about that? I've had a couple. <laughs> one of the first things I ask doctors is, what is your definition of success? Because it's different for everybody. What do they normally say? Like, I want to make this amount of money? Some do. Some say, yeah, I want a million dollars. I want $2 million practice. I want five locations, whatever it is. Those, I always say to them, that's fairly easy to do. The numbers are very easy to, to get to, you know, with certain systems in place. The hardest thing is sticking to your vision. And I remember it was very early on, I had a doctor who her main vision was she was opening a practice to be able to spend more time with her family. She was working like a dog as an associate and she didn't have time to go on vacations or go to her her kids school events and she said I don't care how much money I make yeah I need to make a certain amount of money but I don't need to be a practice that does a million dollars or two million dollars a year I don't have to be that and she's been open probably six years now and she's living the dream doing, seeing the types of patients she wants, very little insurance participation, spending the time with the family. Um, and you would be surprised that I've had more clients wanting that than wanting the money. I think there's so much peer pressure on these dentists because I'm in a bunch of dental groups, obviously. And one of the dental groups I'm in is a dental investment group. And they tend to really talk about profitability, which is great because, you know, having money is not the same thing as being profitable. Having good cash flow is not the same thing as being profitable. And for those who are newer to dentistry, the reason that I say that is you can have money coming in every day, but that doesn't mean that you're actually netting that money. You're, you have to pay your bills out of that. You have overhead and all this kind of stuff. And there's a cost to doing business, but when they talk about profitability in that group, there's always dentists who are saying, I'm going to hit this amount. I'm going to hit this amount. And it's almost like they're just, they're posturing up. Like, you know, I've got this $6 million practice, so I'm able to do this, this, and this. And there are other groups too. That's not just that group. And and like I said, I really enjoy that group, but I feel like I've seen this more online where people talk about how great they are and how much money they're making. And then when you dig in and talk to them about it, it's not, at all. 
the rose, it's not rosy like they think it is because then you start poking holes in all of this stuff. It's important for people to not compare themselves to other dentists because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Do you, do you hear that though? Did you hear that from dentists? Like, well, what's wrong with me? I should be at 50 new patients a month. I'm hearing down this, you know, I'm hearing all over that I, I'm really low. What's going, what am I doing wrong? I hear that all the time. And I think one of my favorite uh, doctors that didn't start off super busy super productive, like really struggled in the beginning. And we had to think of a lot of different ways to get this person patience. And you know, you can't compare yourself, like you can't compare apples and oranges. If you wanna compare, you have to find somebody that is the exact same type of dentist looking to do the same type of dentistry in the same type of location with the same patient demographic. Otherwise, you know, you can't compete with something like that. Somebody can open in a location that there's no other dentist and everybody's going to come to you anyways, or somebody could open a practice in or buy a practice in a place that's really saturated and you're going to fight for those patients. So I, that's why I always ask, what's, what is your definition of success so that we can work towards that? I don't care what the chatter is everywhere else. Yes, you should be doing certain things. I always tell people like, yeah, the average practice brings in 25 to 30 new patients a month. If you're looking to grow, you better be marketing heavily and getting 50 to 75 new patients a month. But to me, like, are you focusing on new patients or are you focusing on retaining patients? So yeah, that's, oh, that's a huge, that's a huge issue. So for more information on that listeners, if you want to go back to the podcast I did with Rick Garofalo, we talked a lot about, you know, closing that back door of your practice because you lose people and you don't even realize it. And that, that's a big problem. Everybody is focused on the new patient. You, you're exactly right. They focus so much on the new patient, but they don't realize that nobody's done any follow-up on any of the consultations that you've done. And, and a lot of times you'll hear, well, I just, you know, I figured they'll call when they're ready, but they're, they're not ever ready. You know, when you're ready, they need to, yeah, they're they not thinking about us. Out. Yeah, exactly. I know we have to like take the ego off there they're not sitting around wondering, oh, I, you know, I, I don't want to upset Teresa. I need to schedule my appointment. That's not how it works. <laughs> it's challenging. And I always say to the doctors, like, don't, don't listen to the chatter. Like, whether it's your friends telling you you should be performing that way or it's a Facebook group or some other, you know, social media platform, you have to do what you want. That'll be how you're successful is measuring your and defining that and sticking to it. That's hard. That is really hard because you do. You get all those people saying things and it pulls you in a bunch of different directions and, and they start to question themselves. Did I make the right decision? You know, I'm not growing as fast as everybody else is. But to me, slow and steady wins the race, right? Yeah. And I think we really have to pay attention, people, to our overheads and our metrics because COVID has changed everything, you know, the the amount of acceptable overhead and, and also insurance. So let's talk about insurance real quick because you have these early practices. Are there times when insurance is not, going in network is not what they should be doing? I mean, what are those situations like when you spot it and you go, you know, that's not really, I don't know why you feel like you need to go in network. Do you ever have those <laughs> conversations? I do have those conversations. And, you know, the younger practices, because they want to grow, 
they know that by going in network with the insurances is going to get more patients. But if we're looking not just at today, if we're looking at five years from now, or even three years down the road, you know, if you want to be in network with all of these, you or right now and get out of network, you better really work on some of the other things like that customer service, mm-hmm. like having all these different financial options in place for people. And I worked with the several offices that started off taking a lot of insurance and within five years were almost out of everything. But they were hoping that they would lose patients because they built up such a patient base and kind of were at capacity and people wouldn't leave. They loved them so much. (laughs) (laughs) And that's possible. And that speaks to a lot of the fear that I know you and I have heard over the years is I don't want to get out of network because I'm afraid I'm going to lose all my patients. And, you know, if you're operating from a place of fear and you've had no customer service training, then I hate to say it, but yeah, you are going to lose patients, but you have to approach it from a winning angle that I'm going to retain every, every patient that's out there, darn it, because I'm the best and my team is the best and they have to go in with that mindset or else it's, it's over before they even start. So tell me about the type of clinical team you would like to see in a young practice. Is it, uh, do you bring in a hygienist with 20 years experience? Do you bring one in right out of school? What's the hiring strategy for the clinical side? Cause admin, admin, if we sit them down, they're not, they're not productive from a point of view of, you know, direct dollars from what they're doing, but with a hygienist and an assistant, they can actually really cost a lot of money. So what do you do? Do you spend more money on that type of person from a, for a new office? Or do you try to get all the grads before they get hired? <laughs> oh, well, if you can, it's like impossible. <laughs> I think they, they, they're not letting enough people into hygiene school right now. I agree with that. I, I think it was in a Facebook group or somebody posted something that there's not enough hygienists for every practice to have two right now, which is crazy. I could see that. Don't you know some dentists that have stopped even looking? They've been looking for so long that they've stopped and now they're doing their own hygiene. I know some doctors that said, hey, it's cheaper for me to hire an associate and let them build up with the daily minimum and they can do some same day dentistry. Um, Younger practices, I do tend to to ask them to hire somebody with a little bit less experience because whether you are purchasing a practice, starting up a practice, if you are a new practice owner and you have seasoned people in that office, they're going to tell you how they want to do things versus you being able to express your opinion as the doctor. So I usually say like one to five years of experience is really good for a young practice. Okay. So now, and we're going to wrap this up, but I, I have a question for you on young offices and even startup offices. How friendly is too friendly when you're a manager, when you're a dentist owner? What do you think of these practices that suddenly become like really tight knit groups? Are there pitfalls to that? Are there advantages to that? I I know my answer, but I'm curious because you've dealt with a lot more younger practices than I have. I think as a team, as a team, like you should be like close and, and friendly as a the owner of the practice or the manager, it's very lonely to be in those positions. And if you want the respect from the team, you can't be just one of the girls or one of the team. You, ha- you have to have some separation 
there. Uh, but when you are starting out and you're trying to get to know everybody and you're a new manager or whatever, you do have the tendency to become super friendly with them. And it makes it really challenging if you had to discipline somebody or have a difficult conversation. How much conversation did that take up with you when you were doing your consulting? How much of that was like, you are too close. You, they don't respect you. What's going on here? Oh my gosh. All the time. (laughs) And, And the reason I bring that up is I just, I feel like a lot of new managers, I hear from a lot of people who are new managers listening to the podcast and they, they're still in that mindset where they want to make everybody like them. They want to be liked. They want to be respected, but they want to be liked. And sometimes those two don't go together. They don't. And it's especially hard for somebody that has worked in that office and worked their way up because they used to be an equal in that office. It's it's a little less challenging if you're brought in, right? Because now everybody knows like you are the manager. But if you started off like I did as an assistant and worked your way to the front desk and then all of a sudden you're their manager, I was always the youngest person there. And then all of a sudden I'm the manager. It doesn't always go well. <laughs> I remember one hygienist was telling me about this new manager. We were we were trying to get them to a good place. She was saying, look, I know that, I'll just say uh, Judy. I know Judy's my manager, but I know Judy really well. And I know she gets like ripped drunk on the weekends and she's stumbling around. Like, I can't respect somebody like that. She's going to try to tell me how to do my job. And it's like, that's because you guys got personal. You guys let each other into each other's lives. And I don't see a problem with being friendly, like you said, but I think sometimes when you know somebody's situation too well, it's harder to work with them. I'll give you another example. In another group that I'm in, one of the threads for Christmas parties was I want to have a Christmas event at my house. I want to invite everybody over. And the overwhelming response was don't do it as a manager don't do it because they're going to be looking around and saying you know well this it was a doctor actually a doctor was was talking about this and the, they were like they're going to look around they're going to say why can't you pay me more you can obviously afford this you can afford that and like the doctors I'm sorry the employees daughter was making comments about how well they live and you can afford to pay my mom more and all that kind of stuff like I just feel like that should be separate and there's still a way to be friendly with your employees, but not necessarily doing something every weekend with them. Right. And you should be friendly. Like in the office, you have to work with each other for what, 40 ish hours a week. That's a lot of time to spend with each other. So you should, you should be friendly, but there has to be a line that you can't be best friends with them. And yeah, you you kind of have to have lunch alone sometimes. And... Yeah, for sure. And that's that's hard. So for the new dentists that are coming out and listening to this, and newer managers too, but really new dentists, I mean, you have to put on your owner pants. And sometimes that means that you're the baddie. You're the big bad. And that's okay. You'll get used to it. And I think that's important. The dispersonality, though, what happens if your dentist is like an S or a C and not a D or an I at all? What happens with the S and C dentist? Do we see a lot of those? They're all S and C. (laughs) There's very few. So S and C is the the details, right? The details and kind of quiet, keep to themselves. They just want order. They They don't like confrontation. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it's a box that they have to check off when they apply to dental school that says, I do not like confrontation because they're all like that. So I, I usually recommend like when they're hiring people, like the doctor takes a disc profile and then you hire personalities that complement yours. And yeah, they do have to learn to be a better leader and sometimes step outside of, of that box. I, I remember way back, uh, probably 
10, 12 years ago, I had um, a doctor that called up and was like, Michelle, my two employees are, are like, they're fighting. And I was like, okay, so what are you doing about it? I don't, I don't know what to do about it. And I was like, well, <laughs> whose name is on the door? It's your practice. You need to go in there and, and talk to them and tell them they can't be fighting there in the office and in front of patients and other team members. Like, I know you're scared of this, but please go do that. And I coached him through it. And he came back afterwards and said, like, hey, they worked it out. I, like, gave them my credit card and sent them off to get a coffee together and told them they had to work it out. And, and they did. But they do. Like, most doctors do not like anything like that. So mm -hmm. if you don't and you're looking for a manager, look for somebody that can handle that kind of stuff for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want you want a good DI for that. Yeah. That's and and for those of you that are like, what are these num these initials they're passing out? It's, it's basically that's the disc profile that you, you classified into a DIS and C. And I don't remember exactly. I know dominant and intuitive, right? Influence, influence, right? And then what's S and C? Do you remember off the top of your head? Like steadiness, and I don't know off the top of my head. I don't want to say it wrong. No, I know I'm <laughs> the same way, and I know Kevin, our friend Kevin Henry, will kill me on this because he's actually a certified disc person and he would be like what the heck's wrong with you Duncan uh, so I can hear him in my ear right now saying that I know dominance because I laugh all the time and this is not going to surprise you at all <laughs> Teresa I'm a 99 out of 100 in the dominance <laughs> <laughs> it's good though it's good and I'm, I'm impressed because you didn't really flip-flop like I was high night I was high D before Noah and then after Noah I went from high D to high I with a supporting D. I have like no S and C in me at all. So I went from D, I to I, D and I cracked up because really what happened was Noah showed me that like all my best laid plans are just, just crap. Nothing. I held on to nothing after that. I was like, I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm going to, you know, if he wants to potty train and in the living room that's what we're gonna do so you, you just kind of forget about that kind of stuff and I remember uh my boss was like what's going on with you you're like a kinder gentler you know Teresa when I came back from maternity leave and I'm just like yeah I don't know what to tell you that's just just me now you gotta deal with it so and that's a good point <laughs> Teresa because people can change different things that go on in their life. Like I wasn't always a really strong D like people listening to this that actually knew me like in my early twenties, even high school, they're always like, you do what? For a living? <laughs> you tell people to do what? <laughs> so I feel like you, you do change and then different things, you know, through, through your life. I've had a lot of different things happening through my life with health and just like personal things mm -hmm. that have changed me. But once I became a little bit high in the dominance, I've always been a DI, always. And the D is really high. My I is, is medium. <laughs> That's why we made a good team. Yeah. So. <laughs> all right. I'm going to have links in the show notes for all of this for your boot camp because it's super important that people like do this because I'm telling you, you will overwhelm new people outside of dentistry if you don't give them some support. And I know like you're thinking – but that's a lot of time to spend on somebody who's brand new. But if you don't spend it, if you don't spend the money, you're going to end up hiring over and over again. I just, it's, it's so tough out there now. What worked five years ago doesn't work now. It's just so sad. And team members, like office managers, they don't always have the time to train. That is the thing. It's like, you don't have the time because you're so busy doing your own job every day. Mm -hmm. This is investing a little bit of money, investing 12 to 15 hours in this person to have them properly trained. So 
after two weeks, they're working smarter. They're more valuable to you. They're going to feel more appreciated by you. So yeah, I, I understand that it's an investment, but from what I've seen so far, everyone has been so happy and appreciative that there is something like this that is customized to their office. Perfect. Yeah, no, I was excited when you sent over the outline. I said this is going to be a slam dunk for sure. So so we're going to link Affinity Management Consulting, which is your baby. And I'm going to have links to your social media. I'm going to have links to your boot camp. And I hope that you all take advantage of getting to know Michelle. I mean, her email is open. Send her an email, find out what she's about, see if she can help you. And she always has a soft spot for people who who came from the implant world like like we did. I kind of feel like that was so specialized. Michelle, I remember people coming in and they were brand new to dentistry and they were going to take a class in implant case presentation. I remember thinking, what doctor in their right mind hires on, on Monday and then sends them to an implant course <laughs> on Friday? But you and I have had, have had all of that happen. So Thank you so much for being on. I'm so glad to be able to feature you. Finally, you came on the podcast. Thank you so much. I am so excited that I finally got this opportunity to do this. I listen all the time. So to actually be here with you is very exciting. And I can't wait to, to hear from your audience and like share some of these, these tidbits with them. Yeah, you know, one other thing too, people, is that Michelle has a lot of war stories too. So <laughs> if you if you get a consultation with her, ask her for her worst war story. And uh, she's got probably, what, a hundred to pull from, I'm oh, sure. Yeah. A book. <laughs> Maybe someday we can write a book about that. <laughs> oh, I know. We should actually. Things, uh, you're not going to hire me, so let me just tell you everything. <laughs> that's, the, that's the book there. So again, thank you for being on. And dear listeners, I always appreciate that you spend your time with me. I hope that this has been super helpful. We're all super busy. So thank you for making time for me today. The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.